It's good to be with you. I hope you, your holidays were fantastic. I hope that New Year is encouraging you to, to trust Jesus more and more with your daily lives. And so we're going to start today in a new series, imagine that, talk called Prepared with an Answer. And here's the thing, I, many of you possibly know my story, but I didn't grow up in the church, I didn't grow up with a faith, and because I didn't grow up with a faith other than God can't exist, because it all seems like ridiculousness, I have this perspective of the fact that many Christians aren't really prepared with an answer at all. If someone asks them about their faith, they at best can possibly invite someone to church or give the Bible answer, which is a really great answer. In fact, it's normally the answer to most questions, and the Bible answer is Jesus. All right, so I need you to say it with me. You ready? One, two, three. Jesus. Yep, that's the way you say it. And even though that's a good answer, a lot of people see Jesus in different ways. And so as we jump into the series today, I want to encourage us, I want to equip us, I want to train us over the next many weeks to be people as followers of Jesus that are prepared with an answer. But here's the great thing. If you come into this place and you have a bunch of questions about God, we're glad you're here too, because not only are we going to equip people to be prepared with an answer, but we want to answer the questions that you're asking versus what we often do in the church, which is answer questions no one's asked. And so I am, and you're not going to be surprised by this, I am a walking contradiction. And here's what I mean by that. As a follower of Jesus, I am a skeptic still. I'm skeptical towards majority opinion. I'm skeptical towards just because we've always done it. I'm skeptical towards these things, and yet here's the contradiction. I'm very, very into orthodoxy. When I say orthodoxy, I mean what does the Scriptures actually say? What do people agree upon for the past many, many centuries when it comes to who God is? And so this walking contradiction is the fact that I am skeptical towards popular opinion, and yet I totally believe the Word of God to be true, and I trust in orthodoxy more than I trust in people's opinions that waver over time. And so as I begin this series... And this message, I want to begin the first passage that we teach of God's Word at Church of the Valley this year. I want to challenge us with God's warning from His own Word. John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, who was exiled on the island of Patmos, who wrote the book of John and wrote 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, and also wrote a book at the end of the Bible, which was called Revelation, no S at the end, Revelation, singular. And here's, here's what is written, this revelation of what was to come. Here's what John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, writes. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes, a words, takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Whew, that's not politically correct. And this is a harsh warning, and yet if we are honest, for many of us, we choose to listen to culture or Oprah or people we ordain as godly rather than God at his actual word. And we treat the Word of God as incomplete or unreliable or unnecessary or outdated. Now, when I stand before the Lord, and I will, I don't want the consistency of my life to be one that didn't make much of Jesus. 
I don't want the consistency of my life to not be one that wasn't seen as reverent to God's holy words. And so I trust that since there is no new revelation, we don't add to the Bible, we don't take away from it, there aren't new things that some preacher or self-proclaimed prophet or apostle has come up with that we listen to over the words of God. Because when we do, we start to get into trouble. Our theology starts to get off. Our view of God starts to kind of waver from the true biblical understanding of who God is. And ultimately, if that is the case, our eternity could be off and missed when it comes to knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him. So as we study over the next many weeks about what it means to be prepared with an answer, what it means to answer questions people are actually asking, I also want to encourage us with why we proclaim, and I think John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, said it best in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He writes this gospel, if you will, this understanding of Jesus' life and what Jesus accomplished and what he did. And he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That should be the first hallelujah of 2018. That we can actually have life in his name. And when we explain when we reply, when we evangelize, we are explaining the truth about God. And why are we doing that? So that people could understand that they can have life in his name. So we offer this series not to make you feel guilty if you're not prepared with an answer, because if you're not prepared with an answer, you're part of the majority in the church. And this isn't just so you'll be prepared but that you will understand that God's word actually does give you an answer, a reply, and a response that is not just a reactionary emotion, but is a biblical response to questions that people actually have. See, there will always be questions that are hard. There will always be answers that are probably even harder to hear. And there will often be questions that you and I, even as Christians, or maybe still kicking the tires of Christianity, we will never be able to reconcile why things are the way that they are. But if we have faith that Jesus is who he says that he is, if he has done for us what he claims that he has done, if we are his and he is ours, then we, by our new nature, not only are prepared and expected to have an answer, but we get to have joy. We get to have the understanding that you and I, as God's people, are God's plan A. Now look around real fast. I wouldn't pick us. Would you? Nah. And yet God chose to choose us. God chose to choose. God picked us to be his plan A, to be his church, to make much of him. And not only us, but those who continually proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. I've seen people share Christ or share their faith, just going to go into some Christianese, evangelize, proselytize, give out tracts, witness, proclaim, confess, and explain. I've seen it done in so many different contexts, in so many different situations, in so many different temperaments. And what I've noticed is that usually we're one of two things. We're either way too afraid to share our faith. Sorry, I don't mean that's you, but I'm going to. So we're either way too afraid to share our faith or we're way too confident about sharing it. You guys ever notice that? Some people are like, oh man, I just, I don't, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to. And then some people are like, hey, nice to meet you. So Jesus, right? And just a little bit too confident. And because often if we look at 
the reasons why, and we'll talk more about that in the near future, the reason why people evangelize, sometimes their motives aren't biblical. Sometimes their motives aren't godly. Sometimes their motives aren't actually in line with what the Spirit wants to do in and through us. So, I'd like, so what I'd like to contend today is that much of our evangelism in the Christian church, if you will, is more focused on duty rather than doctrine. It's more focused on making someone a project than actually thinking about them as people. Because we've gotten so far away from our biblical mandate, we've also sanitized the brilliance of God's plan to actually use you and I to make much of Jesus through our lives, through our words, and through our devotion to Him. So before you or I even open our mouths as representatives of Christ, we, should, we probably should make sure to what we're rooted in, or let me say it a different way, we should probably make sure who we are rooted in. Because without a clear love, a clear allegiance and focus on Jesus, we might not be sharing our relationship with Jesus as much as we're sharing how you can be invited into a club or into a religion or into a building of people who care more about what you do than your heart. So turn with me. We're going to be in 1 Peter 3 pretty much for multiple weeks. And we're not just going to walk through every word of it, but we are definitely going to, at the end, you're going to understand this verse. But 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 15. And who writes 1 Peter? Come on. Peter. That was a totally easy one. It wasn't like Acts. Like you're like, I don't know, Acts 1, what does it say? Uh, Peter writes it. And Peter is kind of, uh, to some, kind of seen as like the first pastor of the church. And Jesus says, I will build my rock on you, Petros, and all this stuff. And, and there's arguments and understand. But ultimately, Jesus builds his church on the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And it is that statement. But Peter is one of the people that's expected to go and make much of Jesus. And Peter preaches at Pentecost. And Pentecost was fun, wasn't it? I mean, Pentecost was a blast. Peter gets up. He's like, you all killed Jesus. And they're like, you're right. What do we do? Repent and be baptized. But Peter also tried to, Peter also denied Christ three times. Peter also got called something by Jesus that was pretty messed up. What did, he, what did, what did Jesus call Peter? Satan? That was my Dana Carvey church lady impression, okay? Don't expect you to get that either. I'm kind of in this, this generation that no one is, and so whatever, but church lady, all right? Peter, I'm not preaching about the church lady. Peter, Peter was called Satan by Jesus. I don't know how you get over that, but the Holy Spirit comes and uses Peter in amazing ways. And he writes this to the church, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, and I have an NIV 84. That's my favorite NIV, just so you guys know. In, 80, in NIV 84, it says it this way, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. In your 2011, it says, in your heart, set, uh, revere Christ as Lord. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always make the Lord holy is another way to say this. And then he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. There is so much to this one little verse but before we do anything, before we even start to wrestle with the idea of being prepared with an answer, you have to look at that first part of the verse, and it says, set apart Christ as Lord. Can we just be honest? Some of us have set apart Christ as a good teacher. Some of us have set apart Christ as a good hobby. Get a boat, guys. There's way better hobbies out there. Don't treat the Lord as a hobby. Set apart Christ as, what is the word? 
Lord, which means that when he says jump, you say how high. When he writes something in the text, you go, yes, Lord. Why? Not because you have to. And if you're not a Christian in this place, you're like, wow, he seems pretty like, here's the thing. He died in your place. He did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He took on death because you deserved it, and he didn't deserve it, but he still took it on for you. So if you actually have become a Christian, you've said, yes, Lord, whatever you will have me do. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. So before you even open your mouth to be prepared with an answer or share your faith with someone, Jesus must be your Lord. Otherwise, you're going to teach a sanitized version of Christianity that literally does not help anyone. Ooh, that's good. Always be prepared. That word's pretty important considering we named the series after it. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Okay. If you've taken my evangelism training, if you've heard me teach on this passage before, which I've done, in order to give an answer, you first must be asked a... Right, and here's the problem with how we evangelize. We answer questions no one's asked. Hey, uh, what's the temperature today? I don't know, but hell's hot. <laughs> like, that, that's kind of how we do evangelism. And then we wonder why people are like, oh, you Christians are weird. We are weird. We're peculiar, according to the Bible. But we got to, according to what Peter is saying, what the Lord, the Holy Spirit is saying through Peter, we must be prepared with an answer. In order to give an answer, you first must be asked a question. We need to stop answering questions no one's asked. One of my favorite things about people asking questions is, if you really want to know if someone's being drawn by the Lord, they're asking questions. If they're asking no questions, you're just overdoing it with them. You're forcing it on them. How I've had so many people contact me and go, man, I've been talking to my grandma about Jesus for 10 years, and I was like, okay, how's that going? Well, she doesn't ever want to talk about it ever again, but I just keep doing it. I'm like, you're not going to be in the wheel, bro. But we have to understand that preparation to be prepared is our responsibility. Be prepared is something that most Christians just are not. Hear me. So if you are not prepared with an answer, hey, you're part of the majority. But let's change that. Being prepared is something that most Christians just aren't. We are not prepared to defend our faith or answer questions that people are actually asking. And if we're not just saved from hell as Christians, but we are saved to invite people into the kingdom of God, we not only should we teach on this, but we should practice this. We must practice the spiritual discipline and mandate of being prepared with an answer. So this word answer, it's actually a word that some of us really like, it, it gets us excited spiritually, and it, it's, it's an apologetic. That's the word. The word apologetic, we'll talk more about this in the, in the other sermons, but the word apologetic means a defense, a defense. But here's the thing with the defense. The word also means an apology. That's what the, where we get the word apology. It comes from this word. But this is not you or I apologizing for our faith. This isn't even us apologizing for the fact that someone without Christ is destined for hell. This is about having an answer, a reply, a response to a question that is actually asked. So when we talk more about how to defend our faith or how to share with others the truth of the goodness of Christ, we'll explain this more, but I cannot stress enough that biblical evangelism isn't to just offend everyone, even though the gospel is offensive. It's to defend the faith, to defend the faith. 
So we're going to talk through, especially this week, we're going to talk about why should we be prepared with an answer, okay? And, and here's a few. These aren't the only ones, but these are pretty important to us. If, if, you, if you have a relationship with Jesus, these things should come out of you. And if they haven't, I'm going to tell you, and then you have no excuse, all right? Why should we be prepared with an answer? Um, one of the first reasons is it clears up misconceptions people have. It clears up misconceptions people have about Jesus. Clearing up misconceptions of Jesus is one of the things that being prepared with an answer is used for biblically, but it's also in a cultural context in history. If we look at how people saw Christianity in the very first century, people were wrong. In fact, early Christians were known as atheists. Did you guys know that? Early Christians were known as atheists. You know why? Because they didn't believe in all the Greek gods that the culture did. They didn't believe in that God and that God and Thor and that God. They didn't believe in all of those gods. I always have to throw a Marvel reference, no matter what. So they, they didn't believe in the gods that ever, the culture believed in, so the Christians got known as a cultish, atheistic group. And so they had to clear this up. They had to make, and there's plenty of stories of them actually making clear, no, 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 we believe in God. We just believe in the one true God, not your fake God. Another thing, which is kind of gross, actually, these are both gross. Another thing that's kind of gross, a misconception. Is anyone in here under 12? Hallelujah. All right. A misconception that Christians were cannibalists. If you guys remember what Jesus says, he's on a mountain and he's talking. He says, in order to follow me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And people are like, what, what? They're like, uh, those Christians eat each other. That's disgusting. And here's the other one, and this is pretty gross too. A lot of people in the first century thought Christians were incestuous. You know why? Because they called their spouse brother. They called their spouse sister. And the way the world saw this was like, oh, you guys are weird. Whoa. And these were misconceptions that people had in the first century of Christianity that people had to be, Christians had to be prepared with an answer for. Now, I'm so grateful there are no more misconceptions of Christianity anymore. Whew. Hallelujah. Actually, there are. And let me give you three. There are. I know. It's crazy. Because if there weren't, I, I probably wouldn't have a job. Here, here, are the, here are the misconceptions of Christianity today. These aren't the only, only ones. These are the ones I want to stress. They're not going to be on the board. You're going to have to write them down. First, misconception, what I call the Hallmark God. Okay, you guys know what Hallmark is? It's a store that's about to probably go out of business soon because everything in it is 60% off, right? And just economics, guys. And so Amazon. And so Hallmark has been a store that's been around for a really long time, but it's, very, it's got a lot of generic things. And the reason we call it a Hallmark God is we kind of make God generic. We don't make the God of the Bible. We make God however we want God to be. And so we start to say, well, and, and hear me, hear me throughout this entire statement. We go, God is love. That's true. God's also full of wrath. What, what? And so we actually have to look to something to see who God is, and we believe it's from the scriptures, and it's not just how we feel. And so there's that misconception of a hallmark God that we have to point people towards the fact, yes, he is love. He's loving. He's caring. But ultimately, if you don't want him, he gives you what your heart desires. So that's a misconception. Another one is this, and I see this more often than not in the church, intellectual acceptance. That we intellectually accept that God exists. Well, I believe in him. Cool, so does Satan. (laughs) 
And he's talked with them. In fact, he's had a Bible study with Jesus. He didn't do very good in the Bible study, but they've spent time together. And so if Satan can do it, you probably shouldn't brag about it. And so there's this intellectual acceptance. Well, I believe in God. So the demons do that and they shudder. And then here's the third one, and this is a pretty big misconception, but it's a misconception that most people have in the church, outside of the church, everywhere. It is this idea that Christianity is all about a religion that is full of traditions and not about a relationship with the risen Savior. So we actually believe that you and I have a relationship with Jesus. How do you know Jesus is alive? Because I met with him this morning. That's how I know. I know all the evidence of the resurrection, which is pretty compelling. See what I did there? But it's, it's pretty, pretty clear. But I met with Jesus this morning. I'm, I'm walking with Jesus. I'm looking more like Jesus as I do what he says. And so this misconception of religion rather than relationship. So just know as you walk out these doors and you spend time with people at work, you spend time with people at school, you spend time in your own house, these are misconceptions people have about Christianity. But in order to give an answer, you first have to be asked, eh? You know how many times I'm going to say that exact term over the next few weeks? Because a lot. It's like he did for you, which you could not do for yourself. Because I want it to be ingrained. Because one of the reasons people want nothing to do with Christianity is because we're constantly answering questions no one asked. So why be prepared with an answer? It clears up misconceptions. And here's the other thing it does. It removes excuses. Gosh, do people have excuses. Oh, there are all those contradictions in the Bible. Really? Which ones? Well, you know, I, I don't think God's ever made himself known. What about a resurrected king? What, you know, and, and so we just have all of these excuses. This is my favorite quote when it comes to apologetics, to have an answer. Apologetics exist to remove excuses and expose the rebellious heart. You want to know why some people don't trust Jesus? It's not that they can't. It's that they don't want to. So let's just let them understand that. If you're in this place and you're kicking the tires of Christianity, man, we're glad you're here. We're going to constantly preach Jesus. And if Jesus offends you, well, you're going to get offended. You just need to know that. But he's worth it. And apologetics exists to remove excuses and expose the rebellious heart. So why be prepared with an answer? Clears up misconceptions. It removes excuses because there actually are answers for our faith. And then ultimately, it makes Jesus known in a way that people can understand. As a 19-year-old atheistic, antagonistic kid, I constantly had people talk to me about God's love, and my response was, then why did he kill my mom when I was eight? And you know what they responded with? Nothing. So I shut them down, which felt pretty good as this atheistic kid, and yet there is an answer. Why does God let bad things happen? I'm sure most of us struggle with this, but can I give you a simplistic answer? Because he gave us choice to choose or refuse him. Oh, that's good. Choose or refuse. See the way I did there? Choose or refuse. And, and, if, and it's not, oh, I'm going to make your life terrible because I chose Jesus. And guess what? My life hasn't been easy once I started to follow him and trust him. But because there is choice, there is sin. And because there is sin, this world is not perfect. It is not good. In fact, it is being restored, and there will come a day where there will be no more pain, there will be no more trial, and there will be worship of a one true God as we're on our face. So why be prepared with an answer, Christian? 
not talking to you, Christian. I'm just saying Christians. It clears up misconceptions. It removes excuses. It makes Jesus known in a way that people can understand. I wish more people had talked to me about Jesus when I was an atheist rather than God. And they made it very clear that Jesus did for me what I could not do for myself. So in order to give an answer you, that you are prepared with, you first have to be asked a question. And as I read the scriptures, and I want you guys to do this exercise this week. I want you guys to look at the book of Acts or look at the altercations Jesus had with individuals. And what I want you to do as you look at that is look for the questions or look for the inquisitiveness of the people that the apostles and Jesus engage with the gospel. Because what I can promise you is it's there. And for some reason, constantly, we're looking at Scripture going, oh, I got a verse for that. Yeah, so does Satan. But are people inquisitive? Are they asking questions? What are they asking questions about? What do they care about most? So start to look at the book of Acts. Start to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start to look at where questions are asked and how they respond with the gospel. Now, one caveat, okay? There's there's one disclaimer where you don't have to do that biblically. You ready? Okay. If you can read someone's mind, answer the question they haven't asked yet. Jesus did that. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and it was like, you know, surely you're from God. And Jesus goes, in order to come into the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. What, what, whoa, that escalated quickly. But Jesus knew what Nicodemus was really asking because he could read his mind. And so we need to be a people, if we can't read minds, that actually are waiting for the questions. And, and here's something that's going to come up consistently. It's not my notes. You can write it down. I'm going to say it again. Be convicted or angry at me later when I say it too. But some of you will go like, well, no one asked me any questions. What does that say about your faith? I'll just let that sit there. Questions are one of the most powerful tools you or I can use. Oh, my gosh. One, to make people nervous because they don't have answers often, which is hilarious. But it's also something that you and I as question askers can pay attention to, to see how people respond, but also to see what questions they ask. I believe with all my heart, someone will show you what's most important to them based on what they ask about. Does ever think about that? So just for a moment, I want you to think about what do you ask questions about the most? When you think of your day, when you think of your week, what are the questions that you're asking about? What's the, what's the content in which you're asking questions about? Because I think it shows or exposes what is most important to you. And if someone doesn't ask any questions, that actually shows how egotistical they are. I've, have any of you ever had to hire anyone? Raise your hands. Okay. You pay attention to the questions they ask because it'll expose what matters most to them. The person who asks no questions, don't hire. That's free, okay? Just giving that to you. So think about the thing that you're most curious about. What creates inquisitiveness in you? Do you ask questions of other people that you respect, that you want to get their perspective? Or do you just ask questions of Google? Do you research to understand things? Or do you research just so you can have an answer that no one asked a question about? Here's the thing. No one has an answer to everything other than God. And even though there are going to be questions that face-to-face 
when we're connecting with people, there are going to be questions that we don't have a great answer for. That doesn't mean the Lord can't use us. You know what the best answer when someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to is? I don't know. It's a really great answer. And then you say, I don't know, but I'm going to look it up. You look it up too, and then we'll spend some time talking about it. How's that sound? Coffee, Pete's, go, right? And for a lot of us, we think that there are these questions that are so out there. They are so big that there's no answer for them. And I've heard some, maybe not of you, but I've heard people in my life say, when I get to heaven... I'm going to ask God about that. Can we just be honest? No, you're not. You're going to be on your face. You are not going to be asking questions about predestination. I'm sorry. So we need to have, we need to wrestle with questions ourselves, but we also need to figure out if we have answers for tough questions. And we're going to talk about that throughout this series, but we're not just going to give answers for questions. We're going to talk about how we use those answers. But there's some tough ones out there that we need to wrestle with. Let me, let me give you one. Why does God create people who ultimately will reject him and spend eternity without him? I'm not giving you an answer. Sorry. Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why isn't life fair? I'll give you that one. Because if it were fair, we'd all get hell. So thank God it's not fair. And in today's culture, some people reject the claims of Christianity. Some reject it. They want nothing to do with it. They stiff arm it. But some attempt to ridicule belief in God. So it's not just rejecting, it's ridiculing. And it's not because they're, more, they're smarter. It's not because they're more equipped. Or even that they know something that you don't. It's because of a biasness that no matter what, no matter what you say, no matter, no matter what logic you use or clarity you use or proof you use, no matter what, they're not going to believe it. Their minds are just not open to it. And this is almost always true of unregenerate people, people that have not committed to Jesus, do not have the Holy Spirit in them, because no matter the evidence, they just can't see it. So here's a question to write down. You ready? is do you have a faith or a superstition? Do you have a faith or a superstition? Do you just kind of believe because you don't want God to rain down thunder on you like Thor, right? Well, I better act like I believe, so I'll go to church, and it's first of the year, so I'm going to go. Do you have a faith in Jesus Christ, or do you have a superstition? Because when we walk out these doors and we engage with people and maybe they do ask us about our faith because we're reading our Bible in a public place or maybe they do ask us about our faith because when life gets really hard, we don't freak out because we got a God that's over everything. We're not just struggling with people that are ignorant. We're struggling with people that are biased because they don't want to believe. I have a... a I guess a life passage. I don't know. Does anyone else have a life passage or a life verse? You're like, that verse, right? Okay. And, and here's mine. And not just because of the book being written has my name. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul, the apostle, who was murdering Christians, ran into Jesus alive after he had been put on a cross and died, and then switch uniforms, switch teams, starting to make known that Jesus was the Lord. He writes this to the young pastor Timothy, and he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
Though formerly I was a blasphemer, this is ESV, extra spiritual version, formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, and then here's the term that's different in ESV, an insolent opponent. In your NIV it says a, a very angry man or something to that effect, a violent man. An insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This term, an insolent opponent, this basically means no matter the proof, it doesn't matter. I believe this, and so forget you. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to believe whatever you say. You can show me a selfie with Jesus alive in the tomb, and it doesn't matter to me. And that was Paul until the Lord decided to draw him to himself and showed himself alive after he had died. And there's a Lutheran apologist, John Warwick Montgomery, that tells a story. And the story is about this, name man, uh, this man named Charlie, whose wife tried to get Charlie out of bed to go to work. Charlie would not get out of bed and said, I can't go to work today, honey. I'm dead. <laughs> His wife said, Charlie... That is literally the most ridiculous excuse you've ever given to avoid work. You're perfectly well. Now get out of bed and go to work. He continued to protest. I can't. I'm dead. No matter how Charlie's wife reasoned, she was unable to convince her husband that he was alive and well, so she called the doctor, and the doctor said, sorry, that's the song. So she called the doctor, and the doctor came and checked all his vital signs and said, Charlie, you're alive and well. Get out of bed and go to work. Charlie said, I'm sorry, doctor. Your instruments are wrong. I'm dead, and I know it. <sighs> the doctor thought about how to convince Charlie that he was alive and finally said, Charlie, when a person dies, their heart stops beating. And when their heart stops beating, it no longer pushes blood through the blood vessels. Dead people don't bleed. The doctor took Charlie to a coroner's office to prove it to him, where he poked a needle into a cadaver to prove to Charlie that dead people do not bleed. Afterward, the doctor said, now, Charlie, do you believe me that dead people don't bleed? Charlie said, yes, you've proven it to me. The doctor said, come here, Charlie, give me your finger. And the doctor pricked Charlie's thumb with a pin, and Charlie's thumb began to bleed. So what do you think, Charlie? The doctor asked. Charlie looked at his bleeding thumb and said, well, I'll be. Dead men do bleed, after all. See, the truth is that some will never, ever, ever be willing to believe facts, evidence, and truth, no matter the overwhelming case that could be built that Jesus Christ is alive. So why are we doing this series, church? For the people far from God to hear an answer that can help reconcile a very difficult objection they may have, but that's not all. For those of us who are mature but need to be reminded of the questions that maybe we've never struggled with or haven't struggled with for a really long time because our job is to be prepared with an answer. For those of us who maybe aren't as mature as we think and maybe have never struggled with tough questions, and so if anyone asked us about it, we'd have no answer and we would not be a good witness for our Lord. We are here to equip, to be image bearers of Christ as we walk out these doors. And that doesn't just mean that we're moral. It means that we're prepared. If you write down one note, here's the note I want you to write down. Our responsibility is to be prepared. The results are up to God. 
Our responsibility is to be prepared. The results are up to God. See, you don't talk anyone into the faith. You can't convince someone who's dead to be alive. It is only God that can do that. Ooh, that's good. If our responsibility is to be prepared, it doesn't just mean we're prepared to answer simple faith questions, but questions that people actually ask that are roadblocks for them to understand and follow Jesus. Now, here's the thing. I'm somewhat good at answering questions. It's because I've asked them, and I wasn't okay with someone just saying, oh, you just have to have more faith. Never say that to somebody, ever. No, there are answers for the tough questions. The problem is that the answers are usually tougher than people can handle. So many of you may see being good at apologetics or having an answer for questions as the end all, as the point. But what I understand from Scripture is that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father first draws them. John, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loves, he says in John 6, verse 44, no one, this is Jesus speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. So if answers are not the end all and we don't talk people into the faith, then why be prepared with an answer? Give you three more reasons. One, so you won't be vulnerable. Do you know that there are a lot of people that have at one point said, oh, I used to be a Christian? That's literally the dumbest theological thing I've ever heard. Because God doesn't say, oh, yeah, I saved you, but now you can go. No, no, no. When you get saved, you're saved. But there are so many people that are vulnerable to tough questions and the tough answers because they're not really rooted in Jesus. So we're going to equip people to not be vulnerable. Another reason is that we understand we don't have to check our mind at the door to walk through the door and worship Jesus because there is actually historical proof in history that proves that Jesus is who he says that he is. So we will understand our faith is not without rational evidence. And then here's a big one. You know, I know you're shocked by this. Third, so we'll grow. Obedience. So we will actually do what God told us to do in his word. So why is being prepared so important to me in my life? Because I want to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. I want to look more like Jesus. And Jesus was prepared with an answer. And he had a lot of drop-the-mic moments, didn't he? I love Scripture. But you and I need to be obedient. And the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, said we ought to be prepared with an answer. So as we walk through this series, my hope is that we wouldn't think being prepared is only for the leaders of the church, but it better be but that it's for every person that calls on Jesus, calls on to Jesus' name. And also that being prepared not only changes the way we follow Jesus, but it also is a mandate for every believer everywhere. So let me, let me take you to the middle of the verse. We're almost done. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And here's one of the things I hope you take away. That as we talk about this series, as we talk about what it means to be prepared with an answer, you would understand that we're going to talk about what makes a believer a believer. And as we discuss and equip us to be prepared, that we would be prepared to actually have an answer for the reason that we have hope. But first, you have to wrestle with, what's your hope in? What is your hope in? Is it in your 401k? Probably not. Is it in your property value? Those earthquakes are probably freaking you out. 
What is your hope in? Church of the Valley, those of you that call on to Jesus as your Lord, my hope is that you would understand that your hope is completely in Jesus Christ. This question may not be as profound to you today as it will be in eternity, but for a moment, I really want you to think yourself, what would you say if someone asked you about the reason for your hope? How do you know your hope is real? How do you know your hope is true? Paul writes to Titus, a pastor in a church near Greece, and he says this in chapter 2 of Titus, verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify for himself a people, that's us, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus coming back ought to be something you and I are excited about. And some of us are like, yeah, but I got plans. <laughs> oh, I got plans too. Spend eternity with my God. And when you have an eternal hope, you live expectantly, you live urgently, and you live with eternity in mind. So Jesus will either come back in our lifetime and we'll get to see all the crazy stuff that we read in Revelation most of us don't understand, or we will breathe our last breath and we will stand before God face to face and you're not going to ask about creation. You're not going to ask about predestination. You're not going to ask about why bad things happen. You're going to thank him for the fact that he sent Jesus to do for you what you could not do for yourself and you will be on your face worshiping. So how do you and I know that our hope is one that is legitimate and not just superstitious, wishful thinking? I, I believe because if God can speak life into existence, I believe what he says. I believe if God can draw me to himself and make me go from death spiritually to life spiritually, I believe what he says. I can trust the Lord at his word. So how do you know that our God is real? That heaven is our future destination if we are included in Christ? How do we know? How do we know that the very words of God are actually in this book? How can you or I know if Jesus weren't just a charismatic magician who misled people for millions of people over many centuries? Christianity isn't real because a majority of people say so. Christianity isn't real because we just hope that it is. Christianity isn't real because of the amount of faith that people have to go, oh, I hope it's true. Christianity's authenticity has nothing to do with you or I. It has everything to do with an event that changed eternity. That Jesus lived the life you couldn't, died the death you deserved, and physically rose from the dead. That's why we have hope. And there is enough historical evidence, and we'll talk about that over the next few weeks, to prove, I believe, that Jesus Christ physically is alive. But you know what? I can give you apologetics all day. You know why I know he's alive? Because I met with him today. And we're going to worship him in song in just a moment. And it is his life, his death, his resurrection that defeated death. It is his life, his death, his resurrection that defeated sin. So you and I could be made right before a holy and perfect God that we have no right to be in front of. And yet he made us holy. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to have some time of worship in song. 
we're going to spend time communing with God in communion. And as we do that, I want to I ask you this. I want you to be prepared, if you will. I want you to be prepared in your heart to not just make the snack, to not just make this something that you just always do. It's the first of the year, and some of us are like, hey, we want to we get more serious about our God. Well, here's an opportunity to express that. I want to ask us as we worship in communion to when you guys come out of the pews to come down here to grab something to dip it. It's, the line's going to get a little bit far back. We have three songs, so we've got some time. You don't have to jump up right away to do it. But if you came prepared to give, if this is the place where you feel God is growing you spiritually, drop off your offering. And the only reason I'd encourage you not to take communion, even if you're a guest, is if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, because then it's just snack. But if you have a relationship with the Lord, we invite you to come and partake. And you get to partake not just in eating bread and drinking juice, but you get to partake in your life basically saying, I identify with the fact that Christ did for me what I could not do for myself. I identify with the fact that he gave us this opportunity to worship him in remembrance of the body that was broken for us on the cross and the blood that was spilled so our sins could be removed from our docket. And so I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing, and we're going to have an opportunity to do something that millions and millions of believers for 2,000 years have the opportunity to do. Don't take this lightly. Allow this to be an opportunity where we engage with the one true God through communion. So please take of the wafer, or if you, you want to be, you know, Colburn will probably do this. If you want to grab the bread and take it and dip it, that's fine. I don't care. But take the wafer and put it in the juice, and thank your God. And then you can worship here on the floor, you can worship in the pew, you can sit on the sides, you can go up to the loft, Moises is up there, he'll, he'll encourage you up there. But we just want you to have the opportunity to worship God through these next three songs in particular, and to allow God and the Holy Spirit specifically to stir in you something that maybe he's telling you to do, convicting you to do. So let me pray, and then we will partake in communion and offering. Father, we thank you for the fact that as we come into this place, you knew that today was going to happen. And not only did you know that today was going to happen, who was going to be in this room, and what I was going to preach, and all of those things, you're making it so the world, the earth is spinning at a certain speed far enough away from the sun so we don't all burn up. God, you're amazing. You're the only one that deserves to be called awesome. And so, Lord, we are a people that are in awe of you. And so would you take this tradition, would you take this remembrance that you, Jesus, told us, your people, to do? Would you take this time of communion? Would it bring a smile to your face? Would we sing these lyrics to you, not ashamedly? Would we sing these lyrics to you knowing that as we walk out these doors, God, you've called us to be a people that make much of you by being prepared with an answer. Lord, for those of us who drop off our offering, God, would you multiply that into the kingdom and make more disciples of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. We thank you for what you're doing in this place. In your beautiful name, amen.